Tonight on Huckabee, the battle over women's sports and transgenders. Actor John Reese davies portrays St. Patrick. Celebrate Mr. Rogers with the Cowsills. That's Trey Corley in the Music City Connection. And I'm your announcer, Keith Bilbrey. And now, here's Mike Huckabee! And welcome, everybody. We are delighted to have you here. What on earth is up? with Trey Corley tonight. Look at this, he's wearing a mask. I was heard you had cooties, so I was making sure. <laughs> Unbelievable. I'm glad he's wearing it, not for his benefit, but for mine. <laughs> all right, this coronavirus is really having an impact on all of our lives. I mean, the stock market has been in free fall because of the uncertainty of how many people are gonna get sick and what it's doing to all sectors of the economy, especially the travel industry. Cruise ships are empty. Entire nations like Italy are virtually shutting down and flights are being canceled all over the world, as well as major events being canceled like the South by Southwest Festival in Austin. At public events, I'm now noticing that most people prefer an elbow bump or a wave instead of the customary handshake. Here in our theater, I conduct a meet and greet with our audience after the show, and I'm finding that more of the audience prefers a simple hello rather than shaking hands as well. But I think it's mostly because there are rumors about me. Not that I have coronavirus, but that I have cooties. <laughs> That's painful. Now, the medical advice hasn't been consistent in this. Some say, not to worry, go on with your business. Others say, don't travel at all, just stay home, put a blanket over your head. The one thing agreed upon is to wash your hands. A lot. Now, the one sector of our economy that is booming is the sale of hand sanitizers and disinfectant wipes. They're sold out everywhere. I mean, there are even instructions on how to make your own sanitizer by mixing aloe vera gel with rubbing alcohol or with vodka. <laughs> so if you see a bunch of your Baptist friends at the liquor store buying up the booze, I'm sure they're there to get the ingredients for hand sanitizer. But boy, are they licking their fingers a lot when they do it. Look, I don't mean to make light of this. It is a serious issue. One death from it is one too many. But while I will take all the precautions I can, I'm not gonna stop living my life out of fear of what might happen. I will, I won't. Now, I will stop eating directly off of buffets with the serving spoon. Um, and I won't be drinking out of water bottles that people have left opened and half used in airplane seat back pockets anymore, okay? And the audience said, ugh. But I already wash my hands a lot and I usually scrub them like a surgeon, especially after shaking a lot of hands. I try never to touch the bottom of my shoes and I do wipe the surfaces around my tray table and seat on airplanes. And I only sneeze on planes when the guy in front of me puts his seat right back in my face. <laughs> and, uh, 
I try to limit my coughing in the direction of people who talk loudly on their cell phones on planes or in restrooms, which I find disgusting. Now, we have to take the coronavirus seriously, but we need to use some common sense and ultimately trust the Lord to protect us when all of our own efforts won't. It's not practical for me to stop flying or traveling. But now that so many in the public are afraid of being on planes because of the virus, I'm flying with fewer people these days. <laughs> so there's actually a silver lining in those clouds. So if I see you in the airport or on the streets, a nice wave, deep bow from the waist, or a tip of the hat will do fine as a greeting to replace the handshake or the kiss on the cheek. And I'm speaking of the cheek on my face, of course. <laughs> Children can't make up their minds as to what they want for breakfast. But advocates of transgenderism say if a little boy decides at age six he wants to be a girl, we ought to put him in a dress, start irreversible chemical hormone therapy that will forever alter his body, and have him shower with girls after gym class. It's a form of child abuse. And it means that boys who are physically different than girls should be able to compete in female athletic competition. The results of that is that boys pretending to be girls are setting new records, and they're shutting out real girls from being competitive in many sports. Last week, Arizona passed a bill that would ban transgender athletes from competing in girls' school sports. I wonder if other states might be on the same path to a return to common sense. Well, my first guest tonight is an attorney representing three girls in Connecticut who filed a federal complaint over Connecticut's policy to allow biologically male athletes to compete against them. Please welcome Christiana Holcomb. Christiana, it's a delight to have you here. I want to just get right into this. How did this case come about and the organization you're part of, the Alliance Defending Freedom, how did you guys get involved in this? Well, girls deserve to compete on a level playing field. But unfortunately, the state of Connecticut has passed a policy that now allows boys who identify as girls to compete in the girls category. And as a result, young female athletes in Connecticut are losing out on podium spots, on championship titles, and opportunities to advance to the next level of competition. And one of those young athletes named, uh, named Selena Soul um, started standing up and asking for help because those in Connecticut would not stand up and support her and push back on that policy. And so as a result, Alliance Defending Freedom got involved and now has the privilege of representing her and two other young female athletes. Let's make clear that when these uh, boys who say they're transgender and they're competing as girls, these are not boys who have had surgical alterations. These are not boys who necessarily have fully embraced a female body. So they still have a male biological body, but they're participating as females. Is that correct? That's correct. The policy doesn't require anything other than simply that these males identify as female in order to compete in the female category with all of their inherent biological advantages. One of the interesting things, the ACLU, you would think would be on the side of these young girls to give them equal rights. They're on the other side. Why is that? 
Yeah, it's incredibly discouraging. Um, as you say, the ACLU really should be supporting equal opportunities for young women. I mean, that's the whole point of Title IX, a federal law designed to stop sex discrimination against women and ensure that young women like Selena and Chelsea and Alana, whom we represent, have those equal athletic opportunities that boys do. But unfortunately, that just is not the case in Connecticut and other states like it that allow boys to compete in the female category. I don't think anybody is denying that there is uh, a need for equality and respect. Title IX was supposed to address that so that female athletes were not given uh, inferior facilities and inferior programs, that they had to have competitive programs. But what this would do was basically nullify everything that Title IX was supposed to help create for female athletes. That's right. It turns back the clock nearly 50 years on Title IX and the equal athletic opportunities it was designed to provide for young women. And look, we have to recognize Title IX protects everyone on the same basis equally, on the basis of biological sex, because biology, not a person's identity, is really what matters in athletics. You mentioned that uh, female athletes who are now forced to compete against male athletes whose physiological capacity for maybe jumping higher, running faster, or hitting harder is, is a biological issue. It's, it's not political, it's not social, it's biological. But it also points out, and I think you mentioned this, that it precludes these young ladies from being able to participate toward championships, and it could cost them college scholarships that they might have been able to compete for and win. So therefore, it does become an economic issue for them. Absolutely. Just by way of example, two male athletes alone in the state of Connecticut now hold 15 women's state championship titles that were once held by nine different Connecticut girls. And these two males have taken away opportunities for my clients to advance to the next level of competition, really important competitions where they compete in front of college coaches. So it's really difficult to assess how much of an economic impact these two males alone have had on the future of Chelsea and Selena and Alana. And we just want to ensure that this doesn't happen to other young women. These women's scholarships should go to female athletes. That's who they're designed for. And those are the opportunities that Title IX has, has been intended to provide them with. Christiana, how long do you think this is going to wind its way through the courts? When do you expect a resolution? Really difficult to say. The lawsuit in Connecticut was only filed a month ago, so we're very early in the process. But truthfully, I hope that this is not a, a long and drawn out affair. Um, I hope Connecticut does the right thing and restores a level playing field and fairness to women's sports. Um, to Selena and Chelsea, two of my clients are seniors. This is their final opportunity to compete in their high school athletic career. And so this matters to them deeply. It matters right now. And it's something that I hope the court will give relief to them very quickly. Well, I do too. Christiana, thank you so much for being with us. Pleasure to have you here. We're anxious to get an update on the case when you have it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. When I was a child, I played soldier, but my parents didn't buy me an M16. I sometimes pretended to be Superman and I wore a towel for a cape, but my parents didn't put me on the roof so I could fly over the neighbor's houses. If an adult determines to make a gender change and they're willing to have the surgery and intense hormone therapy to do it, do it after much thought and counseling, that's one thing. But for government to encourage and support the notion that minor children should make these forever alterations to their bodies, that ought to alarm us. 
If you want to keep up with this important case and all the work of Alliance Defending Freedom as they fight for sanity and traditional values, visit them at adflegal.org. And if you'd like more of my analysis of news stories, you can go to Huckabee.tv for facts of the matter. I'm going to be addressing President Trump's choice for Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, as well as the Democrats' false flag waving over supporting female candidates. Be sure to watch Facts of the Matter on Huckabee.tv. Now Keith Bilbrey, who is a 100% biologically defined individual, is standing by to tell us what else is on the show tonight. Well, tonight, comedian Tim McTiernan and legendary actor John Rhys-Davies. Plus, inspiring photographer Jeremy Coward and Grammy Award-winning producer Dennis Scott. Plus, the legendary band The Cowsills are here on Huckabee. Media and music legend John Tesh and Charlie Kirk's winning political ideas. And welcome back. Our next guest is one of the East Coast's best comedians. He's appeared from New York City to Los Angeles in the biggest comedy clubs, as well as on Comedy Central. I want you to welcome the very funny Tom McTierman. Please give him a big hand. Thank you. Thank you very much. It is uh, wonderful to be here. I heard people complaining it's cold. I can't believe you would think that. I was just in Vermont. It was 23 degrees below zero. The high for the day. Do you have any idea how cold that is? I get out of my car and I'm thinking, I can't see my breath coming out. Do you know why? There's none going in. I mean, it's so cold, I felt lucky to be alive. So I go to the hotel, I'm like, okay, I'm fine, this is good, I'm in, but I'm safe. But everyone else, they're leaving. They're all going skiing. And they want me to go. They're like, this is Vermont, you gotta go skiing. I'm thinking, I've never been skiing and I'm not gonna start in a place called Killington. <laughs> they have a ski lodge called Killington. I mean, of all the available names, Killington, people get killed skiing. Why would you, would you go to a restaurant if it was named Salmonella's? What if I break my leg? Is there a hospital? Oh, yeah, flatliners. <laughs> Medical center. They'll take good care of you. <laughs> but I'm from New York. We complain no matter what. We'll be complaining it's too hot. Give us, you know, give us a week. Because every year we have a heat wave. We always survive. And it's like, but the, the, see, I don't mind being hot. I just hate being told all day that I'm hot. If you watch the news and the radio, that's only, so they always say there's a heat you know, a heat advisory. There's a heat advisory, watch out. But they always tell you how to, how to deal with it, you know? Keep physical activity to a minimum. I'm like, we're Americans. <laughs> we always keep physical activity to a minimum. Right? How are you gonna count down on your physical activity? I'm only gonna go on Facebook half the day because it's hot as heck. <laughs> I'm only gonna post and share a little bit because there's a heat advisory. And then my favorite part is they always tell you, check on your infants. I'm like, yeah, that's good advice. Yeah, I never check on my kid if it's like 70. <laughs> yeah, my wife used to call, how's the baby? I'm like, I don't know, it's been so unseasonably cool. I forgot we even had one. It's not like there's a heat advisory. Well, I did fly in last night, it was great. I got in, I landed, I got out of my seat and I banged my head on the top of the thing. Everybody's done that, right? Except for me, look at the size of me. It was the best day of my whole life. I've never hit my head on anything. I'm like, did anybody get a picture of that? 
I wanted this to go viral on Facebook. I want people to see that. Because it's not easy living life small, I'll tell you, it's not. Because if you think, I had a, you know, I had, I had a child, we'd go in the delivery room, and uh, you had to go, I, asked you, I, I said to the nurse, I said, when do you, when do you put her on this, the stilts? Right? The, the stirrups. <laughs> That's what she said to me. <laughs> I said, look at me, I'm five foot five. They look like stilts to me, okay? <laughs> and it's not easy being short. I'll tell you, if you think you're short, I won't tell you what short is. Short is when you try to walk into Target and the doors don't open. <laughs> and you slam into the glass. And now I need Flatliners Medical Center is what I need. So I'm thinking, how do I get in? Because I got a motion sensor that's going right over my head. So I had to wait for a grown-up to come and let me in. I'm like, do I have to sit in the basket too? Where is this going? I don't know how to go with this, but... I always think that now we have a financial crisis again. I'm tired of these financial crises, aren't you? And I'm like, because we always raise this debt ceiling, you know, from the government. Raise the debt ceiling because we're broke. And then all of a sudden we're not. I'm like, you, why is the government allowed? Why aren't we allowed to do that? I would love to do that. Just spend as much money as I possibly can. And when the credit card company calls me, hey, you know, you owe us a lot of money, I'll be like, oh, don't worry. I'm raising my debt ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I have to vote on it, but I think it's going to pass. <laughs> so I got my bank account hacked, which is like another facet of this whole problem. So if you don't know, you can't use your phone to do your banking anymore. So now I had to go to the bank in person to make a deposit. I walk up to the counter, and I give the lady this stuff, and she stops me. She says, excuse me, do you have identification? I said, I'm putting money in. <laughs> who cares who I am? It's cash. She tells me we're having a lot of problems. I said, with bank deposits? How? Are there money-depositing gangs? <laughs> Do you see them in getaway cars filling out deposit slips? Run into the bank. Here, put this in somebody's account. All of it. <laughs> I don't know. Checking. No, no, no. Savings. Thanks. But I know crazy things are crazy, and we all know that. Everything going on these days. And I noticed during the Super Bowl and watching the commercials, they're so afraid of racism now. They're so afraid to offend anyone. They throw a little bit of everybody in every commercial, right? Yeah, it's like a beer commercial. And they got the big screen. They got the snacks. They got the beer. But look on the couch. Six friends, all in football jerseys. But look closely. They always use a white guy and a black guy and an Asian guy and a Latino guy. And I'm thinking, I have friends of all ethnicities, but I don't have them all over at the same time. One of each. <laughs> so I think, what happens if another friend calls? Hey, Tom, can I come over and watch the game? I'd be like, uh, nope, I already got a black guy. <laughs> I could use a Greek Orthodox, has one of those. <laughs> Thank you so very much. God bless. Tom McTiernan. That sounds Irish. <laughs> this is how short I am. Look at this. I need, I need a booster chair or something. We'll get you one. Yeah. Okay, clearly that is an Irish name. Yes, right? Irish. And I see, look at all these. Yeah, look at all these yes. people dressed up. How many, how many of you are really Irish? I think there's like Yeah, it's just St. Patrick's Day. After that, nobody cares. <laughs> nobody cares. And the only thing about St. Patrick's Day is I, I think it's kind of... Uh, I don't know what it's. It, they make us. I don't know who St. Patrick is. I don't know what he did. How do we celebrate? I don't know. Make him drink.
<laughs> don't you think it's a little stereotypical? Don't you think so? Because it's a, like so. Italians on Columbus Day, they don't make you whack people all day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, just one more and I gotta go home. <laughs> but yes, Irish Catholic. Uh, Did you grow up celebrating St. Patrick's Day in your Irish family or anything? Uh, not really. We didn't. We, I'm, I came from a large family. There's 10 of us. We didn't really celebrate anything. You're one of eight kids, right? One eight of, yeah, kids. eight to ten, so ten people in the house. Yeah, everyone, look at this crowd, is stunned. <laughs> everyone is looking at me thinking, how can you raise eight kids properly? You can't. <laughs> and that's why you became And my comedian. parents had no intention of doing it. <laughs> so did, did you decide at an early age you were going to go into comedy because that way you could make fun of your brothers and sisters? Um, yeah, they were, well, well they, they don't really, they're, they're part of the whole thing. But it's, the whole thing is when I, the whole thing might be, we had three bedrooms and we had all these, we had 10 people. So they didn't know where to put us. One time I opened, my mother opened the closet door. She told me, this is your bedroom. <laughs> I looked in, I said, but there's shelves. <laughs> and she tells me, no, it's a bunk bed. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so. Now, you've got to do a lot of traveling, because, I mean, you don't just get to stay in New York all the time. You travel all over the country constantly. We heard about Vermont, which, yeah. boy, you really sold that place. The Chamber <laughs> wants to give you an award. I'll tell They're you that back. now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was cold, but I don't mind. I don't mind flying. I flew in last night. It was good. Um, I'll tell you, uh, let me tell you a funny story that happened recently. I was working in Houston, uh -huh. and the comedy club sent one of the employees to come pick me up and he couldn't find me. So, I'm, I know I'm not hard to find, <laughs> that easy to find, but what happens is, so I'm on the phone with him, I'm trying to describe where I am. I said, I'm at the baggage claim, there's a bee right above me, I don't know what else to tell you. <laughs> and all of a sudden they noticed standing next to me, remember the basketball player, remember Hakeem Olajuwon? Yeah, oh yeah. Right, everybody, right? right? Standing right tall, next to yeah. me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he, the, the guy from the club says to me, you know, what do you look like? And I said, well, people tell me I look like Hakeem Olajuwon. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, oh my God, you do look like Hakeem Olajuwon. <laughs> and he comes over and... <laughs> yeah, and I come over, I said, do I look like a seven-foot Nigerian NBA All-Star player? <laughs> you know, when you do these comedy clubs, one of the things I guess you got to put up with, hecklers, people out in the audience who think they're going to take it over and they, they challenge you. Does that happen to you? It does. And the funny thing that you mentioned that, because this was just a, this past weekend, um, I'm out there, and all of a sudden, some guy yells something, and he stopped. And I said, that's the first time I've heard anyone want to heckle and just say, I'm sorry, I can't go through with it. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's back, back to you. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I don't know what to say. I said, I've never heard anybody want to heckle and then just say, I'm sorry, I can't go through and, with and it. And you never knew why? He just I never quit? knew why, yeah. He, he was like full forge, ready to go, and then just... Do you, uh, do you find that your comedy has to change because so, people, so, so many people get offended by everything today and everybody gets their feelings hurt Political correctness has changed the way we even laugh, I think. Has that affected you? Well, you know what you do, uh, at least in my opinion, yeah. is you, you kind of make fun of what you're saying, not make fun of the fact uh -huh. of it. You know, it's like recently I had gone to the hospital to visit someone, and I, and I found out the person next to me was recovering from gender reassignment. Okay. Which, if you don't know what that is, it's... it's yeah, well, yeah, somebody's, it's used yeah. to, they used to call it a sex change, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> right, yes, that's what they used to call it. But I'm thinking, why would they call it that? Because to me, gender reassignment sounds like you had it done, but it wasn't your choice. <laughs> <laughs>
Like somehow the government's involved. <laughs> I don't want to be reassigned. Is this Obamacare? What's going on? I mean, the government is up to some crazy stuff. I don't know if they're doing that or not. They may be. They may be doing it. Uh, Will you come back and be with us again sometime? I would, I would love to come back. Audience yes. loves you. We're delighted you're here. Oh, thank you so much. We need more laughter in the world, and you helped us tonight having some. Thank you, thank Tom. Thank you so very much. Delighted. Thank you. Thank now, if you want to see more hilarious stand-up and find out when Tom's going to be performing near you, you can visit him on any of his social media sites. All of them are listed right there on your screen, so take a screenshot of it if you're not a fast writer. And if you're ready for more laughs, be sure to drop by Huckabee.tv for our In Case You Missed It segment. We've got everything from llamas wearing wedding tuxes to a 100-year-old woman who was taken to jail for indecent exposure. Oh, boy. All of that is after the show on Huckabee.tv. Keith Bilbrey is standing over at his own little perch. And we're going to see if he thinks she, that lady will beat those charges. Well, when I think about it, if not, a life sentence can't be too harsh at 100. Coming up, film star John Reese davies and acclaimed photographer Jeremy Coward. Later, Grammy-winning music producer Dennis Scott and the legendary Cow Sills are on tonight's Huckabee. Go to MikeHuckabee.com and sign up for his free newsletter and follow at GovMikeHuckabee on Twitter. And welcome back. Now, you know my next guest from his many classic movie and TV roles, including Indiana Jones and Lord of the Rings. His latest is called I Am Patrick, the Patron Saint of Ireland. It's coming to theaters on St. Patrick's Day for two nights only. Here is a little preview of this great film. Christ the Lord told me to come here to be with these people for the rest of my life. Patrick. <laughs> people thought that his efforts to Christianize Ireland were doomed to failure. Take him. It's time to go. I'm not finished. All the way from the Isle of Man, please welcome John Reese Davis. Delight to have you with me. You are in a project about St. Patrick. How appropriate. It's a Fathom event, two different days uh, here in the United States in theaters across the country. What drew you to the project of playing the role of St. Patrick? Well, the, uh, the man himself is such a great individualist, isn't he? I mean, he emerges as his own uh, incomparable, strong humble self, uh, straight out of the Dark Ages. It's a unique autobiography. Um, I am Patrick. I am a sinner. Uh, it, is, it is just wonderful. 
and what a chance to try and play him. I, I have to confess that I'm taking all the credit for this. I only play the older Patrick, and I do the voiceover, but there are younger Patricks there, and, uh, and, and they carry the burden of the thing. But I just take all the compliments, which is reasonable, isn't it? And you <laughs> should. Why not? I mean, that's, uh, that's mm. part of the... Uh, the right that you have, having been such a successful actor. People have seen you in so many different roles. They've heard your voice on uh, numerous uh, animated series, and you have narrated so many things. You're a very familiar voice and name and face to uh, people across the country. Do you have a favorite role, looking back through your career? I think that uh, I, I tend not to look back, to be <laughs> honest with you. Uh, isn't it John Donne? Uh, Despair before and death behind doth cast such shadows. Um, I, 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 I look forward to the next one. Uh, I, I, I fondly imagine that I'm getting slightly better each time, and uh, I, I don't want to look back and find how wrong I am. Maybe that's why you've had such a sustained career uh, and a lasting one that uh, continues. I, I want to go back to the film... I am Patrick. Most people don't know that much about St. Patrick. They only know about the modern day celebration, the parades, uh, the wearing of green, the clovers, all of the things Irish. What about St. Patrick will we learn in this film that most of us never have heard? You'll, you will learn a great deal about it. I, mean, I certainly learned from just, just reading the script alone. Patrick was probably, uh, well, we call him a Welshman, um, but he was basically late, very late Romano-Britain. He was taken, uh, uh, captured by pirates. Patrick was taken as a slave uh, and taken to Ireland, and he was very brutally treated. And he ended up being a, on his own as a shepherd. The, his master... Uh, decided that he could be a shepherd in a very remote region. Uh, and he survives there. And, and he is obliged to talk because there is no one else. He talks to God. And God talks back. And he successfully, after a while, manages to run away. He finds a boat that will take him back to his own country. He finally finds his way home, and he's welcomed back. Um, he's a young man. He's got a great future ahead of him. Um, but there's something nagging him. Somehow, he's almost suffering from Stockholm Syndrome. And he decides that God is instructing him to go back and convert the people who enslaved him. And he has just the most remarkable life. Uh, and, uh, and he is successful. And then, of course, jealous uh, detractors later on say, ah, but he, you know, he's, he's taking from wealthy people. And he's saying, yes, I am taking from wealthy contributors. How do you think I'm persuading people you know, to give up their lives? How do you think I'm managing to, to, to make other people become missionaries without giving them something to live on? I, I love the bubbling uh, sort of roar of outrage that in Patrick, which he's fighting all desperately with his need to be humble and, and, and 
and subject to God. Mm. It's glorious. You have completely sold me and I think our entire audience on wanting to make sure that we see I am Patrick. John Reese Davis, what a delight to have you here. I hope we uh, get a chance to visit in person soon, but uh, I can understand why you have had such a delightful career as one of the great actors of our time. We thank you for being with us and look forward to the film. God bless you all. I am Patrick, the patron saint of Ireland, is in select theaters nationwide, two nights only, Tuesday, March 17th, which is, of course, St. Patrick's Day, and March 18th. It's all through Fathom Events. You can find a showing near you and buy tickets in advance, and you better hurry. All of that at IamPatrick.com. Now, I'm going to let Keith Bilberry, who is the patron announcer of the show, tell us what we have next. Go ahead, Keith. Well, next, photographer with a purpose, Jeremy Coward. And celebrate the music of Mr. Rogers with Grammy and Emmy Award-winning producer Dennis Scott and the Cowsills. More Huckabee is on the way. Let's have a big hand for Trey Corley and the Music City Connection, our wonderful band here for the Huckabee Show. Well, you know, children are like snowflakes. No two are alike. God makes each of us unique. Sometimes society can't see the talent inside a child, and that's why it takes parents. Here's one example. So my name is Jeremy Cowart, and this is my story. I was born in Nashville, Tennessee. I grew up in a suburb of Nashville called Hendersonville. Hendersonville was originally known for being the hometown of Johnny Cash, but now it's known for being the hometown of Taylor Swift. I love you, Taylor. Growing up, I was never smart. I couldn't pay attention for more than three minutes. I was a terrible listener and I made bad grades. I was quiet, shy, and really just average. I remember always telling my mom and dad, I can't do this. I took piano lessons. I can't do this. Everything I did ended with those words. I can't do this. That's when my dad started reprogramming my brain. He reprogrammed it with one simple sentence. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Beautiful testimony. Well, my next guest uses his award-winning photography skills to capture beautiful images and uses them to tell compelling narratives about people as well as causes all over the world. Would you please welcome Mr. Jeremy Cowell. Jeremy, welcome. Thank Glad you. to have you here. Good to be here. I appreciate it. I guess I should say welcome home to Hendersonville. This is, uh, I literally cried as I drove through town because I have so many memories here. When you grew up in Hendersonville, you, you have said that you were that kid that said, I can't. Yeah. All the things you couldn't do. Mm. You mentioned a verse of scripture that changed your life. Philippians 4.13. Mm -hmm. When did that happen for you to, to really take that to heart? Yeah, just uh, growing up literally five minutes from this building, you know, everything I would attempt, my, my dad would always just hammer that verse into me. Mm. You know, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you over and over and over. And um, 
My mom did too, and I finally, I think you finally start to believe it over time, but he just made me memorize that always. Well, I'm so. excited about it, because that's the verse that really was a life changer for me at the age of 15. And mm -hmm. it's still when somebody says, what's your favorite verse? I don't have to think, well, I know exactly what it is. And that's the one, mm -hmm. because it is empowering. When, when you were raised by parents who kept telling you you could, mm -hmm. did you ever realize how blessed you were to have a mom and dad who believed in you and lifted you up rather than tore you down? As a kid, I did not realize how blessed I was. But yeah, as an adult with so many friends that didn't grow up with a, in a loving home or didn't have the support of both parents. Um, certainly now I get it how blessed I was and my parents are still with me today and um, they're still just as supportive. So yeah, it's a, it's a very special gift to have that for sure. How'd you get into photography? Uh, I just started, uh, I was an, a painter first, then I studied graphic design in college. Mm -hmm. actually got a D in photography, nearly failed. <laughs> nearly failed. I hope you one. go back to your uh, professor <laughs> yeah. and, and tell him, you know, now I am the most influential <laughs> photographer on the internet. Uh, name that in 2014. It's been, yeah, it's been a crazy journey. I, I just took the one class and it wasn't until later that digital photography became a thing yeah. that I already knew Photoshop and the computer language and so... It made sense to implement it, and then I started photographing my friends, and my friends would get signed to record labels, and my career just kind of uh, took off from there. Who are some of the people that you've done photography for that we all would know and say, oh, that's pretty cool? Oh, gosh, everybody from Taylor Swift to um, the Kardashians and Carrie Underwood and... Never heard of any of them. Britney Spears, uh, yeah, all, uh, all, kinds of, <laughs> all kinds of people. There's a long list for sure. That, that is amazing. And all of this from a kid who didn't think he could do anything uh, and who got a D in photography. I'd say there's a great reason to not necessarily believe everything somebody in college tells you. Absolutely, yeah. You, uh, you have really made a mark for being an influential photographer. As I said, the most influential uh, on the internet. When, when we talk about influential photographer on the internet, is that one of the best ways that you have found to be able to get your craft out there for people to see it and experience it? Yeah, well, that, first of all, that was, I was named that in 2014. In my opinion, there's a lot more influential photographers than myself. But um, anyway, I just, you know, at one point I realized that celebrities weren't my, like, you know, I wanted to do something bigger than that. So yeah. I started doing a lot of humanitarian work around the world. And so I started doing projects in Haiti and Africa and Uganda and just kind of, well, Uganda's in Africa, but just all over the world. Um, I've been to over 30 countries, and I just try to be doing, pursuing ideas all the time, just doing stuff. And I think when people want to be have influence, you have to do something influential. And you just go, when God gives me ideas, I just try to be a good steward and go put those in action. And because of that, influence can happen. But I don't go seeking to be influential. I think... Um, I think that's a silly mindset. You know, I try to stay humble and just be doing what God asked me to do. Jeremy, you've written a book called I'm Possible. Uh, it, it details some of the things that you have done in recognizing photography as an art form helps tell stories. Mm -hmm. So when you're traveling around the world, you're taking pictures, but not just to say, here's a picture, but your goal is to say, here's a story. Well, I wrote my mission statement a few years ago that says my mission is to explore the intersection of creativity and empathy. Hmm. So every time there's a natural disaster or a problem at hand, I think, yes, we need organizations to rebuild. Yes, we need money to rebuild. 
we need all those things, but we need new ideas as well. And so I like to think, how can a little artist like me use a creative idea to help in times of need? So when the wildfires struck Gatlinburg, for example, I had people lay on a, in a, on a white mattress in their former home, and then I photographed it from 400 feet up from a drone. Wow. And the aerial view of the devastation showed the, the emotion of that in a different way, and that project ended up on Time Magazine. And so again, is that different shift in perspective from a photographer's view that helps uh, tell the story uh, in a different way. You are also involved in a project called the Purpose Hotel. Mm -hmm. What is the Purpose Hotel? Sure, it's an idea I had in 2012 uh, to build a hotel where everything in the building serves a cause or a nonprofit. So for example, and when you walk down the hall, every room would sponsor a child and tell their story. Hmm. When you upgrade your internet fee, it would fight against human trafficking. When you order room service, it would feed a child in need through food for the hungry. So all the things you do in the, in the hotel are connected to causes and nonprofits. And there's about, currently about 50 of those little micro connection ideas. And so our tagline is change the world in your sleep. So everything you're doing in the building, we, we hope to connect to the world around you. What an amazing project. Oh, thank you. Uh, you know, I'm glad you didn't give up. I'm glad you had parents who encouraged you, and I hope that parents who are watching will realize that one of the most powerful gifts they can give their children mm -hmm. is the gift of encouragement. Absolutely. To tell them that what they can do, mm -hmm. not to try to tell them what they can't do. Mm -hmm. And because of that, you're doing some great things for people. Jeremy, well, thank you for being here. Of what course, yeah, thank Delighted you. to have you. Thank you. For more information on Jeremy and his book that we've been talking about called I'm Possible, go to jeremycowart.com. And if you want to stay updated on The Purpose Hotel, visit thepurposehotel.com. Keith, we may even let you check in there one of these days, but in the meantime, give us a little snapshot of what we have coming up. I would love to. Coming up, Grammy-winning producer Dennis Scott and the Cowsills honor the music and life of Mr. Rogers on Huckabee. Well, in 2005, my next guest won a Grammy Award for Best Music Album for Children with his recording called Songs from the Neighborhood, The Music of Mr. Rogers. His 2019 follow-up recording, Thank You, Mr. Rogers, Music and Memories, included music stars like the Cowsills, John Cicada, and Kelly Pickler. They sing the timeless songs of Mr. Rogers. To tell us more, would you please welcome that guy, Dennis Scott. Dennis, welcome. Great to have you here. I wondered if you were going to come out like in a cardigan sweater and, uh, you know, put on some sneakers and all that stuff, just like Mr. Rogers always did. No, they weren't on sale. So oh, okay. I, I couldn't get them. <laughs> you know, Mr. Rogers uh, has been appreciated by so many people, but I think the film that came out this past year with Tom Hanks reminded people what a remarkable humanitarian and human being Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, really was. He really was. He... He walked the walk and he talked the talk, and uh, I've learned so much about him just from his music alone, from his lyrics, and uh, it's, it's really an honor to be able to bring these songs 
to life again in new arrangements with all these award-winning stars. He really was a musician, a classically trained pianist, and he could sing and he could play, and he, he did compose the music, the, the things that we remember him for. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think a lot of people don't know that about him, and uh, before I did this album, I've gotten to know his wife, Joanne Rogers, and um, we were talking about the movie, and she said, I just wish that there had been more focus on his music. Mm. And that was really what inspired me to go ahead and do this. Did she like the film? She did, yeah. Good. And she's in it. She has a little cameo appearance, too. You know, I, I think it endeared us once again to uh, uh, his compassion for other people, his unselfish attitudes. It, it, it struck me as, wow, you know, I thought I knew this guy. But it really revealed a side of him through the eyes of this person doing a story on him that was very powerful. What, what drew you to studying Mr. Rogers and his music? Well, it came about unexpectedly. I was actually in my kitchen, and a rerun of Mr. Rogers' show came on the air, <laughs> and he was singing this beautiful little song. I said, gee, I wonder who, who wrote that song. Turns out it was him. Yeah. And I had wondered, has anybody else ever recorded his songs? And nobody had. And I said, this is just treasure. And I just felt compelled to do it. And uh, I'm glad that we did. Did you have any idea whatsoever that it would be such a hit? Winning a Grammy, and then the follow-up would have all these amazing, internationally renowned artists who were joining you. In including one of your guests, the Cowsills. That's right, tonight. the Cowsills, who are incredible. Well, it's, it's just an honor to be able to work with these people. I mean, we were talking, people that we grew up, we were listening to their hits, bopping down the streets, listening to the Cowsills and the Monkeys and yeah. people like that. And to have them put their stamps on Mr. Rogers' songs, it, it makes me think that a good song is a song that anybody can record. Mm. And so I'm on a campaign to get Mr. Rogers inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. And I hope you'll all join me. I think that is a great idea. Obviously, this audience thinks that's a great idea. The artists that you enlisted to be a part of the project, I mean, these are the top names in the business. And I have to wonder, how many of them did it because they themselves had been influenced by Mr. Rogers as children? I think just about everybody has a story about mm. Mr. Rogers. And it's amazing because he was so engaged with the people who watched the show. If you wrote a letter to Mr. Rogers, he wrote one back to you. I mean, who takes the time to do something like that? Nobody. And uh, Susan Castle will tell you her own story because she was very much um, a fan of Mr. Rogers. You, you do a lot of musical projects, one of which is you have a Beatles tribute band called the Wanna Beatles. You're terrific. The band is absolutely fantastic. I'm a big Beatles fan, so I love you guys, and I've watched you before. Um, what all got you into music in the, in the early part of your life? Well, uh, I would say it was the Beatles. Yeah. You know, like a lot of people. Like Keith and me and everybody else, it was the Beatles yeah. that I think did it for most of us. They came on the Ed Sullivan Show, and we were mesmerized, and we all ran out and bought guitars and basses and keyboards, and it's been a great ride ever since. I mean, I just... There's nothing like a Beatles song to make you feel... If you're feeling blue and unhappy, yeah. you're listening to one of the songs that life is good. Dennis, thanks for being here. Thanks for reminding us of the just gentle, kind nature of Mr. Rogers and his magnificent music. <laughs> and you even brought a fan. Thank you for being a fan. Well, you can find Thank You, Mr. Rogers, music and memories everywhere music is sold. And you can also get at thankyoumrogers.com.
Now, after the break, Dennis Scott is going to be joined by the legendary group, the Cowsills. We're going to be performing the classic, Won't You Be My Neighbor? I know you've heard that song. More Huckabee in 60 seconds. Stay tuned. From the album, Thank You, Mr. Rogers, Music and Memories, please welcome Dennis Scott and the Cowsills. My neighbor 